in the Bible, we're given many poor examples of fathers. Guys like King Ahab, Lot are terrible examples. Joe, can you turn that down some? Even some of the very important people in Scripture, such as Isaac and Jacob, weren't the best examples of good dads. And as you read through the Old Testament, bad examples of fatherhood abound. And our day is really not so different from biblical times as there are bad examples of fatherhood all around us. However, Scripture not only gives us bad dads, but it also gives us examples of good and godly dads. Today we're going to look at the example of one good and godly dad to learn how we can be godly examples of fatherhood. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 18. We're just going to look at one verse today. Verse 19. It's on page 14 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. God says of Abraham, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. The title of the message is God's Idea of a Great Dad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. We thank you, God, for the godly dads that have been examples in our lives. We thank you for things they have taught us, the, the lives they have lived. Thank you for my own dad and the influence he's had upon my life. I ask you today, Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture and we look at the life of Abraham, that we would learn what it means to be a good dad, that, God, we would take this and we would be godly fathers, that we would do the things that you'd want us to do. We would raise children that love you and follow you, and we would lead our families to be what you'd have us to be. Father, fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways and not to be a hindrance in any way, Father, of what you want done. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now this verse is part of the story of Abraham praying for Lot, or it's where Lot, Abraham is about to begin to pray for God to spare Lot. And in this passage, God basically lays out what he expected from Abraham in relation to his family. Abraham would be a good and a godly dad by fulfilling these responsibilities. And so the idea that I want us to know today is this, is that godly dads fulfill God's expectations. Godly dads fulfill God's expectations. And in this passage, God lays out three actions that we as dads need to take to fulfill God's expectations for us. Number one is to lead my family. God says in verse 19, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. The word command may seem strong, but the basic idea is that he would lead them. And he would lead them to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and to do justice. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But for now, just I want us to see the idea that Abraham was to lead his family. Now, I firmly believe that men are to be the spiritual leaders of the home. And I know that's not politically correct to talk about in our day, but I'm pretty convinced it is biblically correct. One of the main things that men are to do is to be spiritual leaders. We are to lead and encourage our families in their service and devotion to Jesus. This is really the main thing that leadership boils down to. What are we leading them to do? What are we leading them for? And it is to lead them to follow God's ways, to do righteousness and to do justice, to lead them to serve the Lord. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about how we as believers are to encourage one another to serve the Lord. One of the 
most popular examples or most familiar examples is in Hebrews. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised us is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If you were to ever do just a, if you were a type of person that does topical studies of the Bible, and you had a Bible study program at your house, if you were to study in the New Testament, one another, just that phrase, one another, and all the things that the Bible says believers are to do for one another and believers are to do for one another, you would have a pretty good idea of what it means to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, what it is that we are to do for one another. But one of the things that you always have to understand is that anything we are to do for one another as the body of Christ, anything like that, it always has to start in the home. Right? I mean, the home is the, the basic foundation of society. And so if we are to do one another, things for one another out here, then certainly we are to do those things for one another at home. Now, the author of Hebrews says that we are to consider one another right, in order to stir up love and good works. And the idea of, of stir up uh, is, is, is to motivate, to excite, to, in fact, I think one of the, one of the potential translations of it is incite to a riot, right? And so what we are to do for one another is to stir up, to encourage, to incite one another to love and good works, right? This, this is a, a huge thing in the responsibility we have toward one another. This is particularly a responsibility we have in our homes. As, as husbands, as the men, we are to stir up our family, to love God, to love others, and to do good works that God would have us to do. We are also to exhort one another. Right? To exhort is, is to encourage. Right? Because we all go through times where we feel discouraged. We all go through times where we lag in, in, in all kinds of things. And isn't it good to have somebody to come along and say, come on, keep going. Right? Not somebody to come along and say, what is wrong with you? Why do you stink so badly at this? Nobody needs one more person to push them down. Nobody needs one more person to tell them how badly they failed and what they're not doing. But we all need people to come alongside us and encourage us, to tell us we can, to show us the things that we're doing right, to help us make changes in the things that we're doing wrong, to give us positive examples and what we are to do for one another, it always has to start in the home. I mean, what would it say for me if I encouraged you to love and good works? If I encouraged you to be faithful and to keep going, but I did not do those same things in my own home. Right? We start at home. And as the, the leaders of the home, the spiritual leaders of the house... We are to lead our family. We are to consider and to stir up and to exhort that we would love God and we would love others. And we would do the things that God would have us to do. Now, when I was in the Army, I was an infantryman. And the motto of the United States Army Infantry is, follow me. And when I became an infantry team leader, the one thing that they instilled in me, that they drilled in my head as a leader was, the infantry motto was not, go there. The infantry motto was, follow me. And what they meant by that was that as an infantry leader, I was to be the one to set the example. 
Whatever I required of the men under me, I was to set that example. If there was someone that had to run to the guns, I was to go first. And my men would then follow me. You do not push from the rear and say, go there. You lead from the front and say, follow me. And I believe what is true in infantry leadership is true in leadership in general. It is not enough for me to say to my family, serve the Lord. I must say, follow me as I serve the Lord. We must lead the way. We must set the example. We must say, as Paul said to the Corinthians and to others, follow me as I follow Christ. That's leadership. That's not sitting around and being Archie Bunker and telling people what to do. Spiritual leadership sets the example. We lead the way. So let me me ask, guys, who led the way? Coming to church today. Who leads the way in family devotions? Who leads the way in family prayers? Who leads the way in setting an example for living for Jesus? You know the, the sad fact is that many times it's women that do that. And it's not sad because women are inferior or anything along those lines. It's sad because the men are the ones that are supposed to do it. It is supposed to be the man that leads the way. It is supposed to be the man that guides the way to following Jesus. How many of us, how many of us have ever worked with a slacker? Raise your hand. You've worked with someone that did not pull their own weight. But because there would be consequences if the job wasn't done, you didn't just not do it, right? You pulled your weight and theirs. Nobody wants to work with that guy, do they? Right? I mean, if they're saying, hey, who do you want to work with today? You don't want to say, I don't want to work with Sal Slacker, do you? No, nobody does. But you know, sadly, that many times we as men are willing to be that slacker at home. Now, we wouldn't do it on the job. On the job, we would be offended. I mean, we, we don't want to be with Sal the slacker. We wish they would fire Sal the slacker. And then we come home. And when it comes to spiritual leadership, we become Sal the slacker. Because someone has to see the spiritual leadership of the family, don't they? Someone has to determine whether or not we're going to church. Someone has to train up the children the way they should go. Someone has to stir up one another to love and good works. And so we sit and we watch Sports Center while our wives pick up that slack. And they have to do their jobs as the mother and our jobs as the father. It's terrible. It ought not be that way. If we're going to fulfill God's expectations for ourselves as men, we need to lead our families. We need to be the spiritual leaders that God has called us to be. And we have, we have reasons, right? Because some guys would say, well, I'm just not a natural leader. And that may be the case. But understand, we're not the same anymore. We are Christ followers. We have been made new. Anything God calls us to do, God equips us to accomplish. Maybe being a leader is not your natural character trait. It is not who you are naturally. But if you step up to become the spiritual leader God wants you to be, I promise you, God will equip you to accomplish what He wants you to accomplish. He will enable you to be the spiritual leader that you're supposed to be. 
We live to fulfill God's expectations, and that starts with being the spiritual leader in our home. Secondly, train my children. He goes on, and he says that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Right, so, Abraham's leadership has a, a particular goal. There is something he is supposed to do. He is supposed to lead his family to keep the way of the Lord, right? To do the things that God wants them to do. He is to command them to lead them to, to be righteous, to live a holy life, and to do justice. They, that's how they treat one another, right? They are to treat other people in the way that God has called them to be. This is what Abraham's job is to do. It is his job as the leader to train his children, to keep the ways of God, to be righteous, to live a righteous life, and to treat others in the way that God wants them to. Now, did you know that when God brings a couple together, that he has a, a goal in mind for that couple? Right? The Bible tells us what God's desire for a family is. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and spirit? You're his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. God wants godly children. I, I mean, the passage I read at the start of the service, it, it talked about that the fathers train their children and teach them to set their hearts upon the Lord, to teach them to follow the Lord, to do the things that God has commanded. This is... This is God's will. This is God's desire. Is that the children that we have in our families, they would be godly children. They would set their hearts on Him. They would set their, their hopes upon Him. It's a part of what we as the dads are to lead the way in doing. Now, there's at least two things that I think we would have to do in order to make sure that we have godly children from our marriage. One is to point my children to Jesus. But I mean, everything always starts with Jesus. And I, I mean, it's important to understand. When we talk about having godly children, that's not the same as having moral children. God's goal for our marriage is not that we would have moral children. Now, it's obviously not that we would have immoral children either. It's just that morals are a very low bar. And that's not what God desires. God's desire isn't that we would just have productive members of society. As children, that we would have children that have college degrees and great jobs and are excellent at athletics. Now, none of those things are bad, and all of those things may well be good, but that's not the end all be all of what we are to look for and what we are to strive for in our children. We want godly children, we want children who love the Lord and follow Him. Right? We want the morals that they have. To flow out of their relationship with Jesus. We want the excellence in their lives to flow out of the excellence of their relationship with Jesus. We want all that they say and all that they do and the way that they live to flow out of their relationship with Jesus. But right? everything starts and everything rises and everything falls on Jesus. And to point our children to Jesus, right, I have to be clear about the gospel. We have to, to be able to explain the gospel to our children. 
And we don't have to give. The gospel is not overly complicated. But we have to be clear about it. Uh, If we are not clear in our presentation, it will certainly not be clear in their understanding of it. We have to be able to say who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why that's significant. We have to be able to explain to our children Jesus was God in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. That He lived a sinless life. That He died on the cross for our sins. That He rose again on the third day. Right? We, we must tell them that Jesus alone is the hope for salvation. We have to be clear on the gospel. We also we have to explain their, to them their need for Jesus. Explain to their need for Jesus. That's real nice. That's why I'm not an editor. You must explain to them their need for Jesus. Listen, we all love our kids. And we all think our kids are great. The reality is our kids naturally are are sinners just like everybody else. They have a rebellious nature. They push back against the things of God. They push back against rules. They push back against authority. It's just, that's who all of us are. And our children are no different. And as we talk to our children, as we train them up, part of what we have to do is make sure they know they need Jesus just as much as everyone else does. We must make sure they understand that when they, when they talk back, right, it's not cute, and it's not funny, and it's not kids being kids. It's dishonoring your parents, and it's a sin. And because of that sin, they need the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That when they lie, it's not just a small thing, it's not just a fib, and it's not just the way kids are. That it's a sin. And that the wages of sin is death. And because of that sin, they're separated from God and they need Jesus Christ. We we have to convey those things to them so that they know from a young age they need Jesus. And I must encourage them to trust in Jesus. It's not enough just to say you need Jesus. But we need to encourage them to trust in Jesus. Now, one of the things that, that bothers me is when people say, well, I'm not going to try to, quote-unquote, force my religion on them. I want them to make their own choice. Now, a couple things. One, you can't technically force Jesus on anybody. If someone does not call out to Him from their own free will, it does not matter. But secondly, in what other area of life do you do that? Do you tell your children, well, I'm not going to force school on them. I want them to choose it because they love school. Do you, do you tell your children, I'm not going to force them to go to the dentist. I want them to choose because they love the dentist and they want good teeth. Do we let them choose for their shots? I'm not going to make them get their immunizations. I want them to love being healthy and want the shots that will do good for them. We don't do that for anything except the single most important thing in the world. Eternity. More than they need immunizations or education or good teeth, they need Jesus. And so as we explain the gospel to them and we tell them their need for Jesus, we need to encourage them to trust in Jesus as their Savior. We must encourage them to faithfully serve Jesus. All believers 
are to take up their crosses and follow Jesus. All believers are to live for Jesus. Now, is that different at various points in our lives? Sure. But even our kids who have placed their faith in Jesus can live for Jesus in some ways. They can serve Him in some ways. And as parents, as as dads, our job is to encourage them to faithfully serve Jesus. And then, finally, I must look for evidence of salvation in their lives. You know, the Bible, when Paul calls on people to examine themselves to see if they're saved, he doesn't say, have you prayed a prayer? He doesn't say, have you been baptized? He says, test yourself, examine your lives, see if Jesus is among you. And if not, know that you have failed the test. But there are, there are things that will be evident in the lives of a genuine believer. Fruit, visible change, differences that come simply because of their faith in Jesus. And as parents, we should look for that in our children. Right? To encourage them in their salvation. To, to continually turn them back to Jesus if that evidence is not there. We must do these things so that we can point them to Jesus. Secondly... We need to, to teach my children God's standards. Now, once, once our children have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they begin to live to follow Him, there are certain things that are absolutely right, and there are certain things that are absolutely wrong. God has standards about things such as holiness, sexuality, purity, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we dress. All of these things are addressed And our kids are going to develop their own ideas about these things. And our job is not to just say to them, however you work it out, that's going to be fine. Our job is not to say to them, as long as it's culturally acceptable, that's going to be fine. Our job is not even really to say to them, here's what makes sense to me and this is fine. Our job as parents is to teach them God's standards, right? It's what the Bible has always said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And there's a lot about this that I like. One is that since there's only one God, He's worthy of all of our love, devotion, and service. Secondly, He's talking at this point, Primarily to the parents. And the words which I command you today shall be in your heart. One of the keys to our teaching God's standards to our children as parents is that we understand God's standards and we live by God's standards ourselves. We have devoted ourselves to them. Now, once we have done that, we are then to teach them diligently to our children. Now, we'll talk about that in a second, but let me ask you. Whose job primarily is it to teach your children God's standards. It's yours. It's my job to teach my children God's standards. Right? Now, if they come to church and they're a part of children's church or they're a part of Sunday school or they're a part of the youth group or they go to NCS, they're going to be taught the Bible. They're going to be taught the Bible and all of these things and God's standards. But that is not their primary teaching is to come. That should merely reinforce what they're being taught at home. And what they're being taught at home, the parents are to be the primary Bible instructors. And out of the parents, which parent should be the main one 
to diligently teach these things to the children. Dad. Primary responsibility falls to the spiritual leader of the home. It's his job primarily to train up the child in the way they should go. Should diligently teach them. And I like what he says. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And basically, here's what I take from this. I think that there ought to be a regular time where we talk about the Bible. Right? Together. Uh, Maybe family devotions or something like that. Which... I'm going to be honest with you, having consistent family devotions is way harder than it sounds. For us, it is just, we start it, something comes up, we miss it a couple of days, and we miss it a couple of weeks, and we miss it a couple of months. It's difficult. But it's something that we should always be working to do. And there should be that time. But also, as you walk, and when you sit, and when you lie down, you rise up, I think what this means is as opportunities arise, Teachable moments. And all throughout our lives, whether we're watching TV, whether we're listening to a song, whether we see something at Walmart, provides us with opportunities to say, hey kids, do you see this over there? Do you know what the Bible says about that? Right? This, is, this is a good example. You should be like that. This is a bad example. You should not be like that. As we go through our lives, we should look for opportunities. And when these opportunities arrive, take those opportunities to teach our children what God has said about these various things. To take the chance and to talk to them about the Lord and about His opportunities. Godly dads, they, they teach their children the ways of the Lord. They teach their children to do righteousness and justice. They teach their children from Scripture what God has said about right and wrong. They encourage them to have godly standards. They encourage them to understand that God's commands are, are for them as well. Right? There's not a certain mystical age when suddenly purity is important. There's not a certain mystical age in which you have, you have to stop being a kid and grow up and live by the Bible. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are to always follow the Bible. and says we are to teach them, to train them up, to have these standards. This is a part of God's plan and God's expectation for us as dads. And then the final thing is to trust my Lord. I need to lead my family. I need to train my children. And I need to trust my Lord. The last thing Abraham says is that that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. But Abraham does these things, and as he does them, as he's faithful to do them, God will keep all of the promises that he has made to Abraham. Now, God had, had given Abraham some pretty big promises. Turn back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. They give us God's call for Abraham. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, to your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now God gives Abraham several promises here that are big. And let me just take a few minutes and explain what these promises were so that we can see how big they really are. First, he says, I will make you 
a great nation. Now, part of what makes this, I mean, just the idea of concept of being made a great nation on your own, that's a pretty big deal. makes this an even bigger deal is that up to this point in life, Abraham had no children, right? much less a nation of children. Abraham was 75. From what I understand, the way I understand Sarah, she was 65 at this time. To say they were past childbearing age would be an understatement. Right? At this point, it's not likely Abraham is going to be the father of a person, much less a great nation, unless God miraculously intervenes and God does something extremely significant in his life. And that is the promise of what God would do. Second, I, I will bless you. Right? God promised to bless Abraham. Right? Would these be physical blessings or financial blessings or physical blessings? <laughs> yes. He was going to bless Abraham in every way there was to bless Abraham. Right? And these blessings would lead to make your name great. Abraham would be considered a great man by all those who knew him. Abraham would be considered great in every way that the world considered someone to be great, and he was. And shall make you a blessing. Right? And, and the other, this is where we get the idea we're blessed to be a blessing to others. Right? And that's what it was. Abraham, all of the blessings that God was going to give to Abraham, they weren't just for Abraham. Abraham was then to turn around and use those blessings to be a blessing to others. Right? This is a promise that he would be that God would do so much in Abraham's life that just those around Abraham would experience the blessings of God. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now, these are technically two things, but I think it's this one side of, or different sides of the same coin. It was a promise of protection. Everywhere that Abraham went, God was going to ensure that he was safe and that he would be able to do the things that God wanted him to do. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, that's huge. How could one person be so significant that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed? Well, Paul would later explain that blessing was Jesus. Right? That the reason that God's point in calling Abraham and establishing the nation of Israel wasn't Abraham or the nation of Israel. It was Jesus. Jesus was the focus of it all. And so God called Abraham. Through Abraham came the twelve patriarchs. Through the twelve patriarchs came Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all who would believe. This is the point of it all. Now you think about these promises God had given to Abraham. These are huge. Uh, these are, up to this point, God had not spoken to anyone else in this matter. God had not given anyone else these kinds of great and tremendous promises. But these are the things that God said to Abraham, I'll do for you. But you have to first trust me. That's what he's going to have to do. Right? Because up to this point, none of that had come to pass. And Abraham, verse 4, departed the land which the Lord had spoken to him. Right? Abraham didn't even know where he was going. God just said, go to a land I'll show you. And I'm going to bless you in ways you can't even imagine. And all you've got to do, though, is trust me. And that was Abraham's call. Abraham was not to conquer people. Abraham's call wasn't to build a big church. Abraham's call was just to trust God. And as he trusted God, God would make all of these promises come to pass. Now, for us, we're talking about being a godly dad, trusting my Lord. The promises of Abraham were unique to Abraham. But this does not mean we also have not been given great and awesome 
promises. Promises that we mostly have yet to see fulfilled. But we must trust God to see them happen. And let me just show you some of them. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is one of my very favorite verses in all of the Bible because it has such a great promise for us. And it's a promise that God is always at work in our lives and in the circumstances of our lives. Now, one of the things we tend to do if we're not careful is we misunderstand some things about this. One is we misunderstand what it means how things work together for good. Right? God explains what it is for good, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the ultimate good that God has for our lives. Not that every, everything that happens in our life is going to turn out so that we get bigger cars and more money and nicer stuff. That, that's not the promise there. It's just not. Okay? It's the promise that somehow, through everything that comes into our life, God will work it for our ultimate good, which is that we would be like Jesus. Another thing to understand about that is the context of it. In the context of Romans 8, that particularly speaks of suffering. And I love that. Right? This isn't a promise that every good thing that comes into our life, God will somehow use it to help us be more like Jesus. This is a promise that everything that comes into our life, that God will help us to be more like Jesus. The good things, for sure. The bad things, just as much. Now, if you're like me, good things come into your life. You can certainly see how that would be a blessing. Woohoo! this is great, right? But what about when bad things come into our life? What about when suffering and trials and tribulations come into our life? What does that require for us to see that somehow this will turn out for our good and God's glory? Faith. We have to trust our Lord. Right? This is a great promise. But it's one that absolutely requires us to trust our Lord. Another promise. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, verse 8 and 9 speak of salvation. Grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Right? It's not our works that saved us, it's the gift of God. And, and that is a great promise. Right? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But why are we saved? We are saved... For the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we're saved to serve. Now I think there's a couple of ways we can look at this. You can look at that and say I'm saved to serve. Great. One more thing I've, I've got to do in my life. One more thing. One more responsibility. One more thing that must be done. And that's, that's a way I think many people look at it, unfortunately. Or we can look at it as what it is. The God of heaven, the creator and sustainer of all things, knew you and I in eternity past. And he planned for us to do certain things for his glory, to do certain things and accomplish something on the earth. And he created us and he saved us just to do that. I don't know about you, but man, to me, that's pretty awesome. I can, I can remember... When I first had an inkling of an idea that God had something for me to do. I came from a small town, Pickett Center, Oklahoma. Right? It's in between Pickett and Center. No joke. That's why it's called Pickett Center. The, the most exciting thing in Pickett Center, Oklahoma, is if you went about five miles down a particular dirt road, there was a guy who was a cat fisherman. And what do you do with catfish heads? You cut them off and you put them on the fence post. 
And there was about three and a half miles of fence post with catfish heads at various sizes, at various states of decay. Right? And so for excitement, you'd go see how many new catfish heads Jackie, that was his name, Jackie, had caught and put on the fence. That's, that's Pickett Center, Oklahoma. And the God of the Bible, the creator and sustainer of all things, had something for me to do. <laughs> that was awesome. It's an amazing thing. Listen, it doesn't matter where you're from, what you've been, what you've done. If God has saved you, He saved you for a reason. That there is something that God has for you to do. Now, in many cases, what does that require from us? Trust. We have to trust that God's plan is better. We have to trust that God's way is the right way. We have to trust that God really will work through our lives to accomplish His will in the world. Trust your Lord. Another one. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, comes on the end of Jesus being risen from the dead. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, we are victorious through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean we don't struggle? No. Various times in our life we're going to struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, those are our three great enemies in life. The world pulls us away. The devil tempts us away. Our own flesh pulls us away. These are always at work. We're, we are always going to struggle and at various times have easier victories over it. But a great promise for us to understand is that we do not fight from a position of defeat. As believers in Jesus Christ, we fight from a position of victory. I mean, think about that. As oftentimes as believers, when we talk about our struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we, we paint ourselves as poor, pitiful wretches, struggling to get through. Bless God, I might make it this time. That is not the picture of the Christian that we find in Scripture. The picture of the Christian in Scripture is that of one of victory, that of one of the power of God residing within them. That, that God, who can do more than we can ask or imagine, is already at work within us. Yes, the struggle is real. The struggle will always be there. But through Christ, we can always be victorious and we fight with all the resources of Christ within us and all the power of Christ for us. It's a great promise. Not believe it. Trust your Lord. The very next verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That nothing we do for Jesus is ever in vain. Nothing we do for Jesus is ever a waste of time. No matter how it seems, whether we see any visible fruit from it or not. Jesus is risen. Therefore, we are victorious. And everything we do in the name of Jesus it resonates in eternity. It is always, always useful. It is always productive. It is always for the glory of God. Trust your Lord and, and know that what you do matters. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we teach that to kids so they don't say, I can't. And then what do we do as adults? I can't. Here's the fact. It's just as true for us as it is for them. If God wants us to do it, God will certainly enable us to accomplish it. Whatever that may be. Whether it's victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whether it's finding and using our spiritual gift. Whether it's leading our families. Whether it's training our children. No matter what it is that God wants us to do, God will always enable us to do it. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Too many believers today walk around beat down by the sins of their lives. Not understanding that there is no condemnation for them in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. That has been taken away. John would go on later to say, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I love that. Right? What is God's standard? That we may not sin. Right? That's what He wants. God wants us not to sin. But what happens when we do sin? Does Jesus suddenly turn against us and become our accuser? No. He is our advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. So as a believer, you're not perfect and you're not going to be. The struggle is real and at times you'll fail. But those times do not mean you're worthless. Those times do not mean you're a dirty sinner. They mean you're a person. Jesus Christ is still for you. He still died for your sins. He has still forgiven you of them. And He is pulling for you, working in you, trying to help you to overcome these sins. Trust your Lord in this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, all things become new. Again, I love that. You know what? Sometimes we're held down by what we were before we were saved. And, and I think it's different with each person. I mean, some people, really before they were saved, lived rough lives. And have a hard time letting go of what they were. Moving beyond that. But the fact is, what we were before we were saved really doesn't matter. Because in Christ, we're a new creation. The old things have passed. All things have become new. It doesn't matter what we did before we were saved. All that stuff has been taken away. All that stuff has been removed. We are brand new creations in Jesus Christ. And I don't think any of these promises were new to anyone. We've talked about these things before. These are things that we mention frequently at times. So the question isn't, did you learn anything new with that? But does your life reflect these truths? I mean, do you live a hopeful life because God is at work in you to accomplish His will for you? Do you live a purposeful life because God has saved you to do something for His will? Do you live a victorious life because you're more than a conqueror through Christ who saved you? Are you a determined servant of Jesus because everything you do for His name is significant? Are you confident in your salvation because there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus? Are you living as though you're a new creation and the old have passed and the new has come? Do we really believe that these promises contain God's plan and God's want for our lives? Now, these are big. And we haven't seen all of these fulfilled. None of us live in total victory. We wrestle with discouragement. We feel weak and ineffective at times. But do we trust that these things are true? Not, not true in a 
a nebulous, yes, all of the Bible is true kind of way. But these are true for me. I am a new creation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have been saved to serve Jesus in the ways that He has planned for me from before the world began. God is at work in my life accomplishing His will. Do we believe them in a very personal, this is true for me kind of way? We have to trust these promises. This is a part of what we have to do to fulfill God's expectations for our lives. So dads, let me ask you, are you you living to fulfill God's expectations for your life? Are you the spiritual leader in your family? Are you training your children to follow Jesus? Are you setting an example of trusting God to keep His promises? And what about you moms? I know that mostly we focused on dads today. But are you living to fulfill God's expectations of your lives? Or are you setting an example of following Jesus and trusting God to fulfill His promises? There is such a need for godly men and women to commit themselves to fulfilling God's responsibilities for their lives. Our kids desperately need to see parents that are committed to God, to doing what God wants them to do. I truly believe when it comes to Christianity in the home, it is far more caught than taught. What we say will mean something. What we do will mean far more. If our children see us striving to fulfill God's responsibilities for us, it will speak far more to them than our words ever could. Let's stand as our music.